Welcome to Tube Talk, the show dedicated to helping you become a better video creator so you can get more views, subscribers, and build your audience. Brought to you by vidIQ. Download for free at vidIQ.com. Woo! We are back, baby. Welcome back to the Tube Talk podcast presented by vidIQ. I am your host, Viper, the man about tech. I'm an executive producer with vidIQ. And as usual, in my co-pilot chair this week, I got my man, Dan. What's up, Dan? How you doing? I'm good. How are you? I am good. Dan, the internet lost in collective mind yesterday. So I think we need to start there. Now, oh, what happened? <laughs> oh, my goodness. I, what happened, right? <laughs> so YouTube made a change to the, the way things function on the platform. In my opinion, it's kind of a small change. But apparently, if you would have looked at the way the internet reacted yesterday, People feeling got hurt, and it was just all sorts of buffoonery going on. However, now when you go to watch a YouTube video, uh, you know how you get the thumbs up and you get the thumbs down. And you can usually see how many people thumbs up a video, and you can see normally how many people thumbs down a video or dislike a video. Well, with the change that YouTube made yesterday, Dan, you will no longer be able to see how many people dislike a video. Now, this seems to be a very uh, benign change, in my opinion. But again, the way the internet reacted yesterday, you would have thought that somebody took their doggy away from them. It was crazy. Like, there's a lot of chatter about this whole removal of the dislike counter. I am of the opinion that it doesn't really matter much to me personally. Now, I know a lot of people feel differently, and a lot of people disagree, and that's cool. Disagreement is good, as I always say. But my big thing about this, Dan, is that it does not fundamentally change the way I will use YouTube. The dislike counter, I don't even look at it when I'm watching a video. And the thing about the dislike counter is that if you're watching YouTube from my mobile device, which 80% of us do, you don't even see how many likes or dislikes a video has until you actually click on the video to watch it. So is it really that important in the long run? But curious, Dan, what are your thoughts on YouTube removal of the dislike counter? This is an outrage. I am completely outraged at how people are outraged. <laughs> uh, no, it's... I agree with you. I'm definitely in your camp. And I guess we have the hot take here because we did a poll on the vidIQ community tab and the vast majority of respondents want the dislike counter. They're not thrilled about this change. And I have got to say, I think, well, there's a few things. I think, first of all, that as usual, YouTube changes something. We all get mad about it. It doesn't really matter what it is. And then a few days later, a week goes by and no one even remembers the feature ever being there. If you want to see what this looks like, it's already on YouTube. You can go to any video and the dislike counter is gone. The button is there. So it's really interesting. And so I, I looked, I'm looking at the poll right now we took. We got 10,000 votes so far. It was posted yesterday. Is YouTube hiding public dislike counts a good idea or a bad idea? And 32% said a good idea. 68% said bad idea. Wow. So that's a lot. That's a lot of people who are strongly in the camp of no, we need to know how many dislikes a video gets. So let me talk for a second about what this means, viewer and creator. Viewer wise, as a viewer, I do like to know if a video has a lot of dislikes because if a video has a lot of dislikes, but there's a title and a thumbnail that are promising something, it is a good indicator as a viewer to see and go, okay. Uh, it looks like that person isn't delivering on the promise. The thing about that is, unless you have vidIQ installed, which we have a display that shows you the percentage of likes to dislikes, or at least it did, unless you have that installed, you don't really know the video has all those dislikes before you even click into it. And by the time you notice this video isn't delivering on its promise, you're probably already about to click off. You're probably already getting the sense that I'm in the wrong place. 
this creator isn't giving me what I thought they were going to. And you're probably about to leave. You're probably not even going to hit the dislike button. You're just going to leave. Now, that's why I think the dislike counter is not of much value to the viewer. For the creator, I would say it's a negative impact because whenever you get dislikes and every video you post eventually does because just some there's one or two people that always seem to hit the button. The more of those you get, the more of a negative headspace it puts you in, right? The more negativity, you know, and more opportunities negativity has to approach your content. It's just going to put you in a place where how are you supposed to create when you're constantly thinking about, oh, gosh, the video I uploaded today got 10 dislikes. Why? What is it about this video? And that's not where you need to be as a creator. You should be focused on the next video. You're going to have comments still. The comments will give you all the information that you need if if people, the majority of them, don't like what you've posted. And you can learn from those comments. And a lot of comments put people in a negative headspace, but YouTube's not getting rid of those anytime soon. So I think ultimately from both the viewer and creator perspective, dislikes the number of them don't serve a purpose. The only other thing I'm going to say before, uh, sorry, I know I'm hogging all the wind here. The only other thing I'll say is that when you listen to music on Spotify, for example, or any music listening service, there's a like and a dislike button. I have a feeling that's the main function of this tool for a viewer, right? If you like a video, YouTube, it's just a really positive signal to YouTube that it, you want more from this creator. You want more of this topic. If you dislike a video, you don't want to see it anymore. You don't want to see videos maybe from this creator as much. And we don't know that's how it works. I'm saying that's how it works on music platforms, though. If you dislike a song, it's going to take it out of rotation. Oh, this person doesn't really like the song. They've made that clear. Without not, they didn't just skip it. They hit dislike. I think that's the value of it. It doesn't matter how many dislikes there are. Right. So yeah, on other services like Spotify, like you say, when you hit the dislike button, it takes that piece of track out of rotation. So it actually serves a purpose. Unlike YouTube, it doesn't really serve a purpose except for vanity metrics more than anything. So let me tackle the points that you highlighted. Here's the thing from a creator standpoint about the removal of the dislike counter. Even though YouTube is removing it from the surface level, which means when a viewer goes to click on a video, they won't be able to see how many people dislike a video anymore. The creator can still see how many dislikes the video gets on their back end. Right. So it doesn't really even protect the creator from seeing that number because they still have access to it in the back end. So it's a good now, point. Yeah. It's, it's, sorry, just to go off of that, as I forgot to mention that. I will say, though, that this prevents dislike trolling as it, it basically yes. takes it away completely because you have no idea if you're on that bandwagon as a troll. And so, therefore, it should lead to less dislikes. Although it could potentially lead to more uh, hurtful comments, too, that they can't yep. have that counter. But, I mean, that's just a consequence of the situation. But here's the thing from a viewer standpoint. The like or dislike counter on a video is not really the best indicator of how good the quality of a, of a particular video is because when a viewer hits a like or dislike, that's all they have. They hit a button and they're gone. They're done with it. They can't tell you why they dislike the video unless they go down and leave a comment. But most people aren't doing that. So the button, the counter by itself, isn't very helpful as far as determining a video work because there's no nuance behind why somebody hit the button. So like you said, a lot of people use it for dislike trolling or dislike bombing a creator and different things like that. It can be you because ultimately features like that do get abused from time to time because that's just the nature of human being. But the function itself, unlike other services like Apple Music or Spotify, the function itself doesn't serve any real purpose to the viewer except for them to have a way to get something off their chest. Like, okay, I just like the video, dump down. It doesn't take that video out of rotation and different things like that. Here's the other thing that somebody brought up. I was listening uh, in on a Twitter space yesterday with Roberto, and I had a whole bunch of people coming through it in and out of that space. The videos that YouTube presents to you as a viewer 
are supposedly curated by an algorithm that is supposed to know what you like as a viewer. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of ironic that YouTube is removing the dislike counter, even though their algorithm is supposed to be trained to know what a viewer is going to or will want to watch next. So when you factor the fact in that the algorithm is supposed to know what people like and dislike, the fact that we have now gotten to the point where you feel the need to remove the dislike counter, even though the algorithm is supposed to be designed to give you content that you like and will like and enjoy, is the algorithm not doing its job or... Are people just that much in love with a train wreck? I, I don't know, Dan. I don't know. <laughs> the most recent way the dislike counter has been apparent to me. As a fan of Nintendo, I saw the backlash that they got when they posted the announcement that they were going to have this new online service. And there's now two tiers to their online service. For those who don't play Nintendo, you pay, you get online services, right? Well, now there's a more expensive option that gives you access to old games that they've kind of repurposed for the Nintendo Switch. So Nintendo, once again, reselling these these older games, and people think the price is way too high, so they dislike-bombed the video to the point where it became the most disliked video on YouTube. This was very recent. So that was the last time... the dislike counter was even relevant in my mind. And that was the first time I had heard about it in forever. Like, oh, the most disliked video. And all that did, the video was still getting recommended. People were still finding it. It didn't didn't harm the video in any way. It just made headlines because it it was an indicator that like a lot of people don't like this announcement. But at the end of the day, did it hurt Nintendo? Did it hurt their channel? Nah, you know, it was of little consequence. It was just a, it was kind of drama fuel. I guess is how you can think about it. And I don't think YouTube wants to have their platform in the spotlight just for that reason, you know, for drama. Oh, look, you know, this indicator on YouTube is telling us how serious the situation must be when all it takes is a kind of an organized online campaign. Like, guys, we should all dislike this video. This is nonsense, Nintendo. They're going to vote with their dollar. They're either going to buy the service or they're not. And companies aren't going to make their decision on these things just because it got, you know, thousands of dislikes, a video announcement. Right. I made a comment on Twitter yesterday that a multi-billion dollar company is not going to base their decision off a single use case. Yeah. A lot of people were talking about how, well, it isn't bad for tutorial video because now I can't take a quick glance at a tutorial video and know if it's worth watching or not. And my response to that is maybe watch the video for a minute or two, and then you will quickly realize whether or not it's worth your time. See, that's what this is going to call. Now that you don't have an actual dislike counter, you actually will have to go watch a video for a minute or two to get a glance of whether or not it's worth your time. And me personally, I don't think that's a bad thing because it might give more creators, especially smaller creators, it might give them more of a chance to be notified a potential viewer now that people will be kind of forced to watch videos now. Well, remember what I mentioned earlier, unless you have a tool installed like vidIQ, you don't see the dislikes before getting into the video anyway, right? Right. So you already need to click into these videos. Now, the retention on those videos, all the different signals the YouTube algorithm takes into account is what's deciding if you're going to get pushed a bad tutorial in the first place. So you're probably not going to find a bad tutorial video if enough people have made a tutorial on it. Because the ones you're going to find are are being surfaced because they've already kind of gone through the ringer. And a lot of viewers look at the view count and they look at the, you know, channel. They're like, okay, this video for this kind of older thing, this tutorial has a thousand views, but the one after it being recommended immediately after has a hundred thousand views. And it's signals like that that might get people to click in the first place. You know, I just think the dislikes don't factor in to these decisions that viewers are making is what I'm trying to get at. 
I agree with you, but I do think it'll be kind of interesting for different genres of YouTube and how this decision will affect them or not affect them. One of those genres being tech. We have a tech content creator as our guest today. We have Segee coming on from Tech Gear talking in a few minutes. And I'll be interested to get his thoughts on the removal of the dislike counter. But probably the biggest tech creator on the platform, Marquez Brownlee, actually made a video responding to this move by YouTube yesterday. And he is in disagreement with it for the reason that I alluded to earlier in this podcast. He feels like when you are looking at videos, especially like tutorial content or different videos like that, being able to have a quick glance at the dislike counter can tell you if a video is worth your time and different things like that. And he feels like it kind of interrupts viewer experience. But as we and Dan have talked about in the podcast, most people watch on mobile. And if you're on mobile, you can't even see the like counter or dislike counter anyway until you click on the video. So I don't know how much of a factor that's going to play. But my big thing, again, I'll just go back to this real quick. It does not fundamentally change the way that most of us will use YouTube. As a creator, it doesn't affect how I upload. It doesn't affect how I strategize my content or anything like that. And as a viewer, again, since I watch most of my YouTube on a mobile device, I didn't even see it until I clicked on the video anyway. And to be honest with you all, I never even looked at it. I didn't even think about this stuff until this change was made and the internet went on an outrage yesterday. But that is the life and time that we live in, I guess, Dan. That's the best point I think we could really make here is that no one was really thinking about this until it suddenly happened. It was just a switch that flipped. And YouTube does this. They make these changes. And this had to have been months of research, you know, going into this, maybe years before they actually pulled, you know, pulled the plug on the dislike counter. They know what they're doing. And we've seen it a hundred times before. People are going to get mad now. And then it's all going to just be forgotten. <laughs> it's going to be, yep. it's just going to be how YouTube always was. We don't even remember a dislike counter. Why would you even need that? Definitely. And on that note, all I can tell you all is if your creators out there, just continue to make the content. The dislike counter, like counter, it doesn't make a difference. Make good content and the rest will fall in place. Mm-hmm. And speaking of making good content, my man, Thagee of Tech Gear Talk makes amazing tech videos. And today we're going to talk about how to build a thriving tech channel on YouTube. So with that, let's roll to the podcast. All right, welcome back to the Tube Talk podcast presented by vidIQ. We are joined this week by a very successful tech content creator, my man, Sagi from the Tech Gear Talk YouTube channel. How you doing, man? Hey, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on. Super excited to chop it up. Man, thank you for making time. Always appreciate you. Today, we're going to talk about how to build a thriving tech channel because you are doing an amazing job at it. Now, before we get into the tech stuff, I have to talk to you, Tagi. We have to talk to you about the change that YouTube announced as it relates to removing the dislike counter. We just talked about it a little bit in our intro, but now, Tagi, as of yesterday, when you watch a YouTube video, you will no longer be able to see how many people dislike the video. And for whatever reason, Tagi, the internet lost their collective minds. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on this new move by YouTube. So I, I think there are so many layers to this. And it, it seems to be super polarizing in terms of what, what's happening to the community. And, you know, there's no one size fits all because there's so many applications. Like there are certainly types of videos where I could see that it's helpful. And then there, there are definitely videos or a lot of situations where it's detrimental. So it's tough. Look, something needed to be done. So I'm glad a change was made. And, uh, you know, I said this yesterday when we were talking on uh, on Twitter spaces, this will give us more data. And hopefully it's just the first step. And this will continue to iterate into something that makes the whole platform better. Yeah. And I think that's the goal of YouTube. Anytime they make a change like this, it is for the betterment of the platform, even though in the moment, sometimes a lot of us might not think it's the case. But ultimately, that is what it usually comes out to be. It's better for the platform. 
So getting into the uh, your channel, how long have you been making videos on YouTube? Uh, I think this is year five. I think this, yes. I mean, if you count like literally from when I started, I think this is going to be five years now. Ooh. Like I think I started November of 2016. It was my first video ever. So five years, and you are sitting currently at around 300 and I think 25,000 subscribers on YouTube. Uh, yeah. I, well, I think it's like 370. I don't know why you have to take away 45,000 people. <laughs> excuse me. Excuse me. My bad. My Marginalize bad. those people. <laughs> <laughs> no, we can't have that, right? We cannot have that. Absolutely. So when I first discovered your channel a few years ago, you were making mostly content about cameras, like whether it be Canon, Sony, and different things like that. I think more recently, probably I would say maybe over the past year or so, you have pivoted your content from cameras to making more a video more so about Apple and general tech. So I'm curious, what led to you making that pivot in your channel? So when I started, I think probably the first year, I was really just testing stuff. I was just making whatever video. If I had any piece of tech that I had that I wanted to try out, I was just making the video because my whole objective was for me to actually get better like at all the aspects of making a video. So I was really less focused about the topic and I didn't really niche down. So, and you could see that in the growth. Then once I had enough data, I said, okay, well, what are people responding to? And what's the overlap between that and something that I'm super interested in? And that's sort of how I shifted into photography and video. It's always been something that I love and I like explaining how to do things. So, um, I really leaned into that and I pretty much stayed with that until like a hundred, a little over a hundred thousand, I think. And then at that point it became like, I, I always had, like you could tell from the name of the channel, I always sort of had a vision of where I wanted to be, but I knew that like a variety channel, it's not that it would be a variety channel, but even a variety tech channel, I think is harder to grow. So at that point, I said, okay, I have a good enough base where I think I can start introducing new type of content. And uh, this is only phase one is, well, now I'm, now I feel like I'm in phase three, but there, there are more phases coming. So like I said, right now, when I first found you, you were doing mostly camera video, whether it be like I said, Sony, Nikon, Canon, whatever. Now your videos are mostly about Apple and Apple products, whether it be iPad, MacBook, iPhone, different things like that. So why Apple specific content? What made you pivot to Apple specifically? So I, again, I looked at where there was demand. And again, it was the same type of thing where there's demand that overlaps with stuff that I'm interested in and use. And Apple, Samsung, consumer electronic was was definitely something that that fit. Like, you know, if you look at that Venn diagram, it was it was right there. And uh, I made a couple of videos and saw that people were responding to it. And I leaned into it. If I'm understanding you correctly, you took a chance on Apple content and you saw how the viewers responded and then you were like, all right, this is where I got to go. My whole life, like I believe like you need to go and try stuff, right? You're going to do the same thing over and over again. It's fine. It's not that it's not going to work, but you almost know the results of what's going to happen if you keep doing the same stuff. So I, I always believe like you have to build a YouTube channel that you actually want, because if you're creating content that you don't want to create anymore, then... I mean, that's terrible. Like to create three videos a week or two of content you're not interested in just uh, sounds horrible. So I knew that there is no way that for the next five or 10 years, I'm going to make just photography content. Like there's nothing wrong with it. There's lots of people who do it. They're super successful. But like for me, that wasn't going to be enough. Just like I think Apple and Samsung and 
like where I'm what I'm doing right now isn't going to be enough, which is why there'll be more later on. But yeah, it was like, okay, let's try it. Like, what's the worst thing that'll happen? Like that video will tank. Okay, well, I'll go make another camera video. I'm curious, given where you're at now, when you take a look at the channel, it it looks mostly to be Apple products, tablets, you know, you mentioned Samsung and, and products like that. Do you ever struggle with ideas coming up with new content ideas? Do you feel a little too boxed in where you're at right now? I guess I'm only as boxed in as I'm willing to be like, I, I can go make any video. Now, having said that, that doesn't mean that video will get views. I mean, I think just a big misconception when people starting out on YouTube is they correlate subscriber count with views. It doesn't matter. You can go look at my videos when the audience is not happy with the video that I put out. And I don't mean that they're not happy like they dislike it. But if they're not interested in the topic, it doesn't get any views as a function of the size of the subscriber base. So, you know, I feel like there are like different strategies. I know Sarah Dishi sometimes talks about like doing a couple of videos for the audience and one for herself. And that sort of keeps her balanced. Um, So different approaches there. I'm trying to stay pretty focused. So I feel like it's a choice and there are consequences or potential consequences. Absolutely. So I ask because we have so many creators who, when they start out, that's what they want to do. They're like, I don't want to be boxed in with one type of thing on my channel, whether it's a video game or uh, product reviews or whatever it may be. So you seem to have successfully pivoted from one major topic, photography, to a totally different topic. I'm curious if any advice on the steps one could take if they were looking to do something similar. That's a good question. And I think it's it's also like super nuanced, right? Because it doesn't mean it will work mm-hmm. from one pivot to another. Like, I feel like in what I did, there is enough overlap between like people who are interested in photography gear are probably also using a laptop or a tablet. So I feel like there was some sort of organic overlap. And I think when people look at niching down, they're thinking topic instead of thinking audience overlap. Mm. So they're saying, oh, I can only do this topic. And they're not necessarily thinking, oh, but someone who's interested in this topic might also be interested in this topic. It's not exactly the same, but it could fit the same audience or some of the same audience. Viper, this kind of goes into a lot of the things we've been talking about recently with audience persona. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you've created quite a, uh, you know, specific persona for kind of content you create. Or you've learned of the type of person who watches your content. That I did. I know, Viper, you've heard this before. But until I had 108,000 subscribers, I responded to every single comment and every single reply to every comment. So on every mm. common thread on my entire channel, oh, wow. I was the last person to speak. And what I felt like that, and I don't recommend it like, <laughs> to that extreme, like you don't need to be like as extreme as I went, but I do recommend <laughs> that you do a lot of it because what it allowed me to do, at, at least for my audience, is first I got to know my audience. I got to know who's watching it and going full circle into how we started with the like, dislike, I got to actually get feedback. Not like I like this video, but this is what I liked about it. I'm glad that you included X. I wish that you would have included Y. Oh, okay. Like if I see enough of requests for that, I understand that there is demand from the audience for that piece of information that I may have either taken for granted or didn't think it was important. So I think in interacting with the audience, that actually gave me a lot of insight and it allowed me to make the videos not better, like I think they're better, but better to better serve the audience. If that, does that make sense? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. And it's interesting because a lot of times uh, newer creators have difficulty targeting their audience, or I should say identifying their target audience. So I love how you highlighted that you did that by going down to your comment section and responding and having actual conversations with your viewers so you can get a better gauge of what it is that they want from you. And that way you can craft your avatar or persona, as we've been saying in this podcast, so you can know how to best go about making your content when you know who's watching it and what they want from you. Absolutely. Like you see a bunch of like going back to the photography thing. I get a, a thousand questions about I'm taking this camera to my kid's sporting event and I'm getting blurry pictures. Okay, cool. Like that's something that's clearly a pain point for a lot of people who are buying these cameras. Let me address that and let me help them choose a camera that has better low light performance so they can use a faster shutter speed, whatever. I don't want to, I want everyone to fall asleep, but let me give them the information that they need to sort of help them make that decision. And that also makes the audience feel like you're speaking to them. They're like, oh, like he understands me. Like he's he knows what I'm trying to accomplish. So it's I, I think engaging like it's super easy to sort of step back from the audience because they're not there. Like if you don't spend time interacting with them, you don't get any real feedback. This episode of Tube Talk is brought to you by vidIQ's trend alerts tool. Think Google alerts, but specifically for YouTube trends. This tool is great for planning your next video as it helps you stay on top of trending topics within your niche. Provided you have vidIQ installed on your Chrome or Firefox browser, you'll find it on the left-hand sidebar the next time you're in your YouTube studio. Once there, you can create an alert and enter keywords for it and set the parameters. So, for example, I could have a channel that covers iPhones. And I may want an alert that includes things like iPhone, iPhone 12, or even Apple event. Then I can set up my alert to email me whenever a new video hits, say, 500, 1,000, or even 10,000 views an hour. So if suddenly I get an email and see 20 new videos all talking about iPhone 27 rumors, and they're all each getting about 500 views an hour, I know that something's probably going down and I had better hit record. The Trend Alerts tool is free when you sign up with vidIQ, so visit vidIQ.com, install the extension, and start creating Trend Alerts today. Obviously, as we highlighted from the beginning of the podcast, you have a super successful tech channel and you've been doing it for five years. I think a big problem for newer tech creators is staying relevant when they can't buy all the latest tech. So what advice would you give to a new tech creator who wants to be successful, but they might find difficulty in staying relevant if they can't buy all the latest tech that comes out? Because as you know, Tiki, new tech is dropping every year and it's not the most cost efficient tech sometimes. (laughs) No. And you can also lose, right? Like you can say, I'm going to go buy this $1,500 device. I'm going to make this content and the content for whatever reason, it doesn't mean like you did anything wrong, but for whatever reason, it doesn't perform and you're out 1500 bucks. So, you know, there's a risk inherent in that. And I've been an entrepreneur my whole life. And so my whole approach to this has been as a business, but to go full circle into your question, I would go deep into a product rather than try like, You can't win on having the most recent tech. That's not realistic for someone who comes in with anything but an unlimited budget. Okay. Like fact, all these larger creator, like forget where I am, like 10 times, 20 times bigger, right? Like you can't compete on having the tech first and having all the tech. So that can't be your point of like, that's how I'm going to differentiate myself. So then find a piece of tech that you can see resonates with your audience and then go deep, do like Be the guy, be the girl, be the woman that's the person you go to to learn about this particular piece of tech. So this phone, make 20 videos about it. 
find like different ways and nuances and and just answer different questions so that someone is like, okay, when I have a question, like when I need to know more about this, I'm going to go to this person. And I think that's a good way to sort of repurpose a piece of tech for a long time. I mean, you, you, you can make a ton of like if you look at some of my like my M50 videos, I think I have like 30 Canon M50 videos. And that, that was from the purchase of one gadget. Yep. Yep. And then like as those sort of became successful, yeah, I would buy another lens. And now it's this lens for the Canon M50 and like these three lenses or, you know, and, and it's just different angles of hitting that same product. And here's another thing that sort of happens when you do that. It's more likely that when YouTube serves that, same vi- that second video to someone who already and your third and your fourth and your fifth video on that same product to someone who's already watched one of your videos that they're like yeah i'll go watch another one of their videos i enjoyed the first one so now you're getting that multiple that repeat viewer they're watching more youtube's learning about what type of viewer likes your content they're going to find other viewers that are like that person and so it all sort of works together versus sort of shotgunning it and youtube can't figure out the avatar either I, I want to dive into this a little bit because I'm imagining a scenario where I'm a creator. I'm brand new to YouTube. I'm very passionate about tech. Maybe maybe I'm very specific. I love Apple products. So the problem is I, you know, I have a part-time job. I don't have this major budget to buy all the new Apple products. So like you said, I could do 50 videos on on this one thing. I could cover it front to back. What if someone takes that risk and because they still haven't quite gotten their YouTube chops down, They spent the money, they spent the time, the videos don't perform. How do you approach that? Should I have not bought the thing in the first place and maybe practiced some other way? Or should I start remaking videos? Okay, so that's a a great question because that's probably a reality for a lot of people. And there's like so many angles to look at. What I did was I practiced with inexpensive stuff, like a power bank that cost me like 20 bucks or something that was fairly inexpensive in the beginning. However, I would say to that person, the videos may have not gotten the views that you wanted, and that's clearly not optimal, but you did make 50 videos. You are a better creator today than you were 50 videos ago. You're a better editor. You're better on camera. You probably understand production better. So by no definition, was it a waste? There is actually no way you could have gotten here without making those 50 videos. So yes, I understand channel performance. That's obviously where we all want to get. But I would say is that that there are also like other ways to look at those videos. You created a catalog of content, so that's always going to be there. And when someone finds your channel, I've had videos that sort of stay dormant for a year. And then all of a sudden something clicked and boom, the video just pops. So it's never a waste. It sucks financially. I know you like you invested money and you didn't get that gain that you expected, but you did get a ton of practice out of it. It's super important, I think, for people to hear that because there's a lot of pressure that that comes with creating a YouTube channel in the first place. You got friends and family when they find out you're doing that. Like, well, I mean, how how many big YouTubers are there really? Can you even make it? So you, you have all these external pressures. So then then a lot of people deal with self-doubt. And now yeah. we're talking about a big investment, a product review channel, not just a tech channel, a product review channel of any kind. If you're reviewing something that costs you money to get, a lot of risk there. So I, I think that was a really, really solid advice. And, and, you know, somewhere in there is the whole idea of comparison. It's hard enough to deal with it on your own. Oh, yeah. And when there is someone else in your life 
who's doing that comparison for you. That's really challenging. And I have so many thoughts about comparison because there's just, it's just not good in any way. And it almost doesn't matter. Like I love to push this to the extreme. Let's even say that that it's you and another creator and you started at the same time and you're you're in the same niche and that person is being more successful than you. So what? Like how, how does that actually impact your life? And if you were more successful than them, except for like other than the fact that you're more successful for them, like what does that actually how does that matter to you? The only thing that matters is how you're doing. And I hope I communicated that well, like literally nothing changed when you became more successful than someone else. Like, are you happier than you were yesterday? Are you? It should be about so many other things other than comparing with other people. Now, I do think there is value in looking at other channels and looking at what they're doing that's being successful and uh, and learning from that, but not from a comparison of like, oh, why is that person like it's not fair or the algorithm is helping them or any of that stuff that's just, I mean, it's honestly, it's not helping you. And all the energy you put into that is just being wasted because at the end of the day, you're still where you are. I like to tell creators that if you are worried about a major channel covering something that you also want to cover, the one thing that you need to remember is this is actually a benefit. If you if you have a creator that's a variety product review channel, right, and they're reviewing the latest and greatest things, but they have a big budget, people are sending them stuff, they're only going to cover that one way, and then they're going to move on. But you, as a more focused creator, have covered it three different ways now. And guess whose videos get recommended alongside those big creators? Bingo. I love how you just talked about when you are looking at other channels, don't look at them in far comparing them to you. Look at them to see what they're doing right, what's working, what's not working, different things like that. Because, you know, when your boy Viper goes into the podcast, I do my research, which means, Nikki, I had to take a look at the Tech Gear Talk channel. And I noticed a few things. I want to talk to you about something that's been paining me probably since I started my tech channel, and that is thumbnails. And I've noticed on your thumbnails that there was a period of time that you had your face in a thumbnail. But over the course of time, you kind of pivoted from having your face in the thumbnail to making just product-focused thumbnails. And to me, it seems like the product-focused thumbnails have been much more successful than when you were in the thumbnails yourself. Talk about what led to you making that change, because I'm curious. So it was just another test. And I also like shifted the types of thumbnails that I made, even if it was product-centric. You know, the data is actually interesting. Like I, I haven't done, like for me to actually do a real fair test, I would need to do a couple more thumbnails now or like do A-B tests now um, because I haven't done a face. Maybe this is just not a good face for a thumbnail. People are like, oh, no, I don't, I don't want to watch that guy. But I think that there's no wrong answer there because what works for me is not necessarily going to work for someone else. So for whatever type of kind, like just try it. Like it's the, the risk is so low, like put a thumbnail up. And also like, don't use anecdotal data. Like one video is not enough. Like you need to make a bunch of these thumbnails and a bunch of those thumbnails and group them and look at CTR because otherwise it could be like the topic that you picked or when you published or a million other variables. And there's still going to be other variables. But for me, it was testing those thumbnails, seeing what's performing. And I actually really like making those thumbnails. They take me a really long time, but I like the whole process. So let's get a little bit more nuanced into that because as I was looking at your more recent thumbnail, which is the product, that's my big problem with tech thumbnails. If you just have product-centric thumbnails, a lot of tech creators do that. And I kind of feel like 
if you fall into that circumstance, you could become a victim of blending in with the crowd. But looking at your thumbnail, Thagi, I don't know what type of thumbnail voodoo you got going on over there. But even with your product centered thumbnails, you have figured out a way to make them stand out. It's almost like you have some type of 3D popping out effect of your product thumbnail. So what is your thought process? What is your ideology about how you create your product centered thumbnail? Because again, they're not just normal, regular old run of the mill product centered thumbnails. These things are like IMAX 3D effect thumbnails. Like what lets you make it no type of thumbnails? So I spend a lot of time. Like I literally probably spend four, five, six hours like getting the thumbnail to be. And that's from like, because when you look at one thumbnail, I probably shot three different ones. They were all like equally involved and then pick the one that I like the best. So like, usually I'll have an idea and I'll be like, oh, I'll just have a, an idea of visually how I want it to look. Uh, but even within that, it's like, okay, well, I want a different color background or I don't like this or I don't like that or that angle wasn't great. So it probably takes me well, several hours just to get the shots. And then there's a, a lot of editing that I do to it. What would you say the ratio is in terms of video versus thumbnail, uh, the time it takes you to do that? It's probably still four to one video to thumbnail uh, because my videos still take me. I, I shoot a lot of B-roll. Um, again, I like shooting B-roll. So like I'll spend hours gotcha. and hours and, and maybe it's just all for me. Like, I don't know if I don't know if it's actually helping the video that much, but I like it. So I try to get a ton of shots. And I also try to like share the experience. Like I picture myself, if I didn't have the product, like I would want to see it from every angle and I'd want someone to hold it. And I'd, I'd want to. And so I try to include that in my videos. So yeah, it's still, it's still a lot of time. I was very curious because you said that's a lot of time to spend on a thumbnail. Uh, I think you mentioned up to six hours sometimes. Yeah, because ultimately, if I get to the end point and I don't like it, I'm going to go start over. Now, I've gotten better over time and sort of seeing it's just not going to be as good as I want it to be. Like, I'll stop halfway through and still go take the shot over again. But I'm not recommending that people go and spend six hours on their thumbnail. But that's in my range. Okay, so I want to try to get inside of your brain a little bit, because again... If you're making a lot of tech content creators make product-centric thumbnails, there's a whole lot of them. Like if you go type in M1 MacBook Pro, chances are you're going to see a lot of product-centric thumbnails that focus on the product. So what is your thought process? What are you doing to make your thumbnail stand out? Or how are you trying to differentiate yourself from the rest of the product-centric pack? I think that's what we really need to get down to. Because again, you do a very good job of this. I'm just curious of what goes through your thought process when you're creating your thumbnails to ensure that they stand out among a crowded product-centric thumbnail crowd. Again, I don't know if that's the part that's being successful. I can tell you that I approach my thumbnails like I would a product shoot. If I was photographing that product to sell it, that's like the level of detail that I go into. So I go like, again, probably to an extent I don't need to, to like touch up the photo. It's like so like so much. And I don't know if that's that's what's helping, but. Like, I really give it that, like, I I go over it to that level of detail. Like, if you look at my Photoshop file for a thumbnail, it's probably 20 layers of just corrections and and highlights and shadows and spot removal and just a million things that are happening, which is why I've had a difficult time explaining to someone when someone's like, well, how did you get to this? I'm like, Oh, like I can't explain it. I can show it to you. Like you could sit and watch me do it and it will make sense. But it's like not the same process for every photo because it's sort of reactive to what happened. Like 
oh, I took this shot and now when I'm editing, I'm like, oh, this area is too dark or this one's too bright. It's not something that's consistent. There isn't like an action that I apply in Photoshop and then it just goes and does that to every photo. When you hear the amount of time that goes into these thumbnails, if you're a listener right now, you might be thinking, gosh, how complex are these thumbnails? But I, I encourage anyone to go to Siki's channel. Like these thumbnails are actually very simple, like just to the eye. Like when you look at them, it's one thing, you know, it, it's just this one thing that clicks with the title so well. It's not just logos everywhere because I can I can add 20 layers in Photoshop right now. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that would be easy. That does not make a thumbnail. Right. Some of it is like an advantage of having a, like a graphic design and photography background where it's like my eyes drawn to areas like, I mean, even something basic, like a reflection would drive me crazy. Like I'll spend a half an hour removing some highlight of a reflection because I'm like, no, I, that's what I see every time I look at that picture. So I guess the ultimate question is when you're done crafting your thumbnails, what is it that you hope to accomplish with each of your thumbnails? Like, do you have a specific purpose for them? It's not the obvious, it's like, I want people to click on it, but what is it that you hope to accomplish when you make one of your thumbnails? Like, what are you hoping to gain or what are you hoping that a potential viewer gains by looking at your thumbnail? So I do hope, like as basic as it sounds, I do hope it stops somewhere from scrolling. Like, I hope that they look at that photo and they're like, oh, like that's, even if it's just because they like how it looks, even if they don't click on it, like I got them to stop, right? Like, good, that's step number one. There is a level of consistency in my thumbnails where I hope that after a long enough period of time, they start recognizing those, even though my face is not in it. And they're like, I've seen a thumbnail like this before. And I, I know who it is. And hopefully they had a positive experience with the previous video, not a negative one that they're, uh, but yeah, those are my two goals. Yeah, definitely looking at your thumbnails. I can tell that you have a template going on. So good work, man. Keep doing what you're doing. But now I want to move to the way you title your video because titling tech videos and it could be easy and it could be hard at the same time because obviously you could just throw out the product keyword in there and be done with it. But that doesn't really set a tech video apart because a lot of people, again, are just putting the product keywords out there in the title and being done with it. But you, you don't do that. You add like a, some type of superlative before you get to the product keyword. And that is, I mean, from what I'm looking at, that's how you do most of your titles. So I'm curious, what is your thought process for how you title your video to get people to want to click? Because ultimately, we want people to click and, you know, tech content by very nature is kind of boring and it's not very exciting. But how do you go about crafting a exciting title that somebody will want to click on? I mean, so exciting is part of it. Like maybe we'll get excited. Maybe we'll get them curious. Maybe we'll get them like frustrated or angry. Like, uh, like right. Like it's fine. If you're going to click on this thumbnail because you disagree with what I said, that's cool. And then I'm happy to have a discussion about it in the comment section. But I want to elicit some sort of emotion in the person that's reading it. And then I hope they're like, you know, not like a negative in like in that way, but sort of like, okay, it, it, I think it comes down to like curiosity, like, okay, so what is this guy going to be talking about? Or like, why would this be a waste of money? Or yeah, I don't know, why would I pay more for this versus that? So those types of things where hopefully they're curious enough to click and get the answer. The way you put that, I just want to touch on something real quick, because sometimes your titles, it feels like, and I'll read some of them off here, it feels like your opinion is coming through in the title. So don't waste your money, 14-inch versus 16-inch M1 Pro MacBook. Why pay more, 14-inch M1 base model, things like that. So we kind of know going in what you're thinking. Do you, do you ever worry about that? Do you ever feel like, oh, I'm kind of giving away my opinion too much? Can, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Okay. What, what does the first title mean to you? 
Wait, don't waste your money. Sure. Or, which one? Sorry, now yeah. I forgot which one I said first. Yeah, yeah, that one. No, no, that one. I see that, and I think you're going to talk negatively about this product. It's kind of like you're looking at the headline of a news story, and it's like, don't waste your money. And I'm seeing what I'm potentially thinking about wasting my money on. And I may still want to click on this video. I'm not saying I'm because 176,000 people obviously felt like they they wanted to learn more, but it does kind of allude to your opinion. Now I have some ideas about what you're thinking when you're going into this video. Okay, this is a good insight because that's not how I meant the title. Okay. The way I meant it is don't waste your money on the wrong one. See, here's the thing. When you read the title by itself. So that's interesting. I was looking at the title, less the thumbnail. This is why these things work together so well, because if I was actually in the market for this, I'd probably be thinking along those lines. So this isn't the best comparison. (laughs) Best, best. No, no, no. But I think that's really good insight because it doesn't matter why. That's how you understood it. And that's where I think, right? Like here's something that I learned where I don't, when I don't get that, this two-way interaction, I wouldn't have known. Like I was thinking, oh, it's clear. That is not what I'm saying. I'm not saying don't buy either one of these. And definitely that is not the tone of the video. So I wonder if that would be causing like friction for people. If they come in expecting me to dislike both of these products, that is not what I'm delivering on. So that's, that's good insight. The next line in that title is 14 versus 16 inch. So because I was going to suggest, oh, maybe a versus in the thumbnail, but it, you put it in the title. So it's, it's just that first statement you put, that big, bold, all caps text of like, don't waste your money. Hopefully <laughs> that alone is enough to read the next part of the title. So, you know, because so, again, that's one of your better performing videos in the, in the last couple of weeks that we're looking at. So now I'm afraid I'm influencing you in some way. That, that was obviously the right choice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's like the whole point of how we title and thumbnail our video. We want the fiction. We want people to wonder. We want people to be curious. Even like you said earlier, we want that emotional connection to the video. So maybe that is what, maybe the video had the desired effect. I mean, I guess it did. 176,000 people thought so. So hey, you might be on something, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. It clearly elicited some sort of response. And I would, I think overwhelmingly the response that I've gotten from the comments has been positive. So yeah, that's, this is like, this is super cool. Like to have, this is sort of like a mastermind analysis here of the, of these titles. Yeah. Clearly you have a good idea of how to title your video thing. You have done a good job with them. I like how you create that emotional conflict within a potential viewer's head with titles like that. Because again, when you do that, then you get people wanting to click on the video to see exactly what you're going to say. And that is what we have created. We want, we want people to get a conflict in their head and then click on the video to see how that conflict may or may not be resolved. That is amazing, man. Chef kiss. <laughs> Chef kiss. So like I said, the podcast is about how to build a thriving tech channel and obviously part of building any thriving channel on YouTube is making money and revenue. So whatever you're comfortable with, I want you to talk to us about the different avenues of revenue that you have that are from your channel. Okay. So, I mean, most people start with AdSense. Mm-hmm. I, I would say start with affiliate. Just get to AdSense when you get to it. Because I think a lot of people look at, and, and for those of you who are listening, AdSense, that the ads that are being shown in your video before and during when people are playing it. So a lot of people sort of look at that as a benchmark, right? Like I'm going to get a thousand subscribers and 4,000 watch hours. And what I tell people is that with my CPM, with how much money I make uh, or RPM, whatever, it doesn't matter, with how much money I make per click, at the moment that I reached 1,000 subscribers and 4,000 watch hours, I would have made $256 a year. 
If that's the pace, <laughs> if that's where the number of views had stayed the same, that is how much money I would have made a year. So while I do think it's an important threshold to get to because it's sort of the beginning of that, that really, it's not like then the floodgates open and you're making a ton of money. Putting that aside for just one second, with affiliate marketing, especially when I was doing photography content, that you could start day one. First camera review, boom, set up affiliate accounts and start linking to them. And what's interesting there is that you start realizing how many thousands of views you need to get to make $10 versus one camera sale that's going to make you more than that. And then that, that, that shifts very quickly. So I don't know if you want me to pause there or to continue. I'm kind of curious. When you say your first video, you could be setting up affiliate accounts. Do you have any advice on how much you should really push those links? Because I've always felt like if you're a brand new creator, maybe you should be a little careful about being too pushy about like the, the sales part of the sales aspect of YouTube. I, it's probably way different for tech channels. I come from a very different background. Okay. Um, so I would say in my videos, and my videos in general are not salesy. They're educational. Like I'm trying to teach you about this product. And I sort of chuckle when I get comments of like, he's just trying to get you to buy a Sony. Like, I don't care what, I don't care what you like. I want you to buy a camera that works for what you need. Uh, that's, that was really my only goal. Like I'm going to educate you about these cameras. And so that you know, like, okay, I do X, Y, and Z. This is a good camera for me. Um, so I'm never in my, it's like actually built, like in the structure of the video, I'm not trying to sell it to you. Uh, I mentioned that there are links in the description. And to that extent, I don't think it, it comes off as pushy. Mm -hmm. If Does that make sense? Like the oh, link yeah. in and of itself isn't the pushy part. Yeah, it's all about how you present it. I, I got you, definitely. So you talked about AdSense, you talked about affiliates. What are some of the other ways that you generate revenue via your channel? So also, and this is something that I waited on for a long time, sponsorships and integrations. So a product integration or a sponsorship is something that I started like this year. And for a number of reasons that like uh, on the one hand, it's, it's good because it makes money, but it introduces a whole different dynamic into the video creation process because one of the quote unquote nice things about having your own YouTube channel is that as far as the production, you're the client. Like the, you're not answering to anyone. You, you're not waiting for approval. You're, the video is ready. It's edited. You're happy with it. You publish. You answer to the audience to some extent in what you give them, but but it's it's your show. And once you start working with brands, again, which has a positive, and there's also a cost because you are now having to do a lot more. You're there negotiating. You have to review contracts. Always review your contracts. Please don't sign any contracts you haven't read. And I'm sorry for this uh, public service announcement, but don't sign any contracts that you haven't read and don't sign anything you don't understand and ask questions. They're not going to care. They're not stupid questions. If you don't know what it is, ask. Okay, let's continue. Um, but there's that whole element to it that just gets put on top of you. And, and a lot of people look at a YouTube channel like you're a creator and I get it. You are. That is part of it. But there are so many other aspects. You're actually running a full business and the product is the video. So that's something that I, I waited until later to start. And but it's it's definitely a, a good one to start doing. I'm super excited about going into next year. 
Yeah, I love how you said that you waited until you integrated sponsorships and the, the brand integrations into your content because I feel like some creators might jump on that a little too soon. They might not have enough experience or they might come across as salesy, as you alluded to earlier, if you integrate that stuff mm. too soon. So I love how you said that. You know what? I took my time with it before I naturally put that into my content. And also, like, make sure it's a good fit. Like it's a good yeah. fit for your audience and a good fit for you like as a human that you're, you're okay with. Because no, I don't care what kind of YouTube channel you have. You're going to get lots of offers as you start growing. There are going to be all different types of offers. So, you know, make sure that it's like, think of how much work it was to garner trust from your audience and keep that in mind always. Definitely. So it's funny that you were talking about not coming across too pushy earlier because I don't know, y'all probably not aware, but this man helped tech creators save money, okay? I remember I was thinking about buying an expensive memory card and I had a one-to-one talk with this man. He was like, Viper, no, you don't need that. You need this memory card. Don't get the expensive one, get that one. So can you talk to us about your relationship with the tech community? Because I know some creators have this like this adversarial thing or they think like it's me against them. And I think me and you and Dan too, we think we all understand that we are not each other's competition. We are more of a community. And if we treat it like that, I think we will have a lot more success. And you are very good at that. So we'll talk about how that factors into your growth as creator. I mean, I think it touches back to what we said about like comparison. And like, if you do, if you look, if, if you're comparing on that, on the degree of like, so-and-so is doing better than I am, it's hard to be collaborative and to help other people. Cause you're like, I don't want them to get better, right? But if you actually look at it, if you remove that and you're learning from each other, then why wouldn't you help someone else? And and the entire community sort of grows together. Um, and and to your point about like gear and spending money, like I love gear and I spend lots of money on gear, but I do want people to like make a smart decision and get something that works for them. And, and that's true for my audience and for like the, the creators that I, I know because just because something is better doesn't mean it's better for you and you could have used all that money to do something else so that's that those are a few different angles appreciate you so Sigi, five years 370 if you viper 371,000 subscribers later what advice do you have for inspiring new tech creators what would you tell them you know what? How about I, I'd give you the advice I would give myself if I was just starting out. I think that's sort of me. First of all, just start uh, already. Like if you're saying I'm thinking of starting a YouTube channel and you're beyond the like, oh, I just think it's cool. Like if you're like, oh, I, I'm going to start when? No, start now. There's no starting when. If, you, if you've already decided to start at some point, start now. Because yes, you'll have better gear at some point and better lighting and better audio and all of that stuff. But some of the things being on camera, preparing your videos, doing your research, interacting with, with your audience. There are things that you can't, there, there's no YouTube tutorial that's going to, it can give you insight, but you can't, you can't get better at those things without actually doing them. So you need those reps. And the sooner you start getting those reps in, I promise you the better off you'll be. So that's advice number one. This is something I've said to you before, Viper, but most people spend like 90% of the time picking a camera, like 8% of the time picking a lens, and then maybe they get to lighting and audio. Please do it the other way around. Get good audio, get good lighting, and then pick a good lens for the body. Like the camera is like 
the least important thing you're going to pick because the camera is also something that you're going to change. If you buy good lighting, there's no reason for you to change it like literally ever. If you get a good microphone, if you don't drop it, you're never going to change it. And as Dan Viper, as you guys know, bad audio will make you turn off a video. Very like we're at a point, this is not 10 years ago or 15 years ago. You can get amazing video from your phone. So we're sort of beyond the point. It's like the problem isn't that the gear isn't good enough. It's that you have bad lighting or not enough lighting. If you have good lighting and you have good audio, the video quality is going to be fine. And this is sort of going back to what we said to comparing to like the top 1% of the 1% of the 1%. That is not like that is so unfair to yourself. If you think that's the threshold to entry, go look at their first video. Mm. Like it did not look like that. Viper, you've heard me say this before. You can't make a video as bad as my first video. You literally with this phone, you cannot make a video as bad as my first video. I know they can't see the video. I can't see my (laughs) phone uh, because I'm holding it on a podcast, but I am holding a phone. I was just going to ask, you mentioned earlier, you're in phase three right now of your YouTube journey. What what does phase four look like? Any, Any insights you can give us there? So phase four will be another expansion in the type of content. That's sort of that's sort of how I see the next step. I haven't decided what that would be too yet. Uh, and I, I might change my mind. I don't know. But right now, this is sort of what I look at as the next phase and sort of expanding. I'm also looking into, like, there are different bottlenecks once you get to sort of a different size in, in terms of production and how fast you can put out content. So there are some efficiencies and maybe growth in terms of bringing in other team members. So those are, and and I'm excited. That's why, I mean, next year is going to, I'm super excited. My man's looking at a team of growing the empire. That didn't put up, man. That didn't put it up. <laughs> to Gee, Mr. Tech Gear Talk. Appreciate you being on here, making the time, man. Thank you very much. Before we go, though, uh, let the people know where they can find you. Uh, you can find me on all the socials at Tech Gear Talk. Uh, I, that's it. Couldn't even be any simpler. Yeah, again, you can't see me, but I'm in a blue background and all my photos at Tech Gear Talk. <laughs> Easy as that. No doubt, man. Appreciate you making the time. So thank you. And for all our listeners out there, uh, his information will be in the show notes. So definitely go down there, check him out. He is legit. Thank you guys for listening to another episode of Tube Talk for my man, Dan. I am Viper, the man about tech executive producer here at vidIQ. We will see you next week. Have a good weekend. We out of here. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tube Talk brought to you by vidIQ. Head over to vidIQ.com slash Tube Talk for today's show notes and previous episodes. Enjoy the rest of your video making day.